drops hey. the up today. The episode's dropping on Mondays. Heidi Ho and welcome to the Matt Watch That Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to review a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, I want to talk about love. Yes, we are celebrating Valentine's Day on the Matt Watch That podcast with love-related movies, series, and clips. I know I do a lot of reminiscing, like an old man sitting on a porch, a beagle with cataracts by my feet as I rock back and forth, shotgun leaning against the siding. But I'm not a nostalgic person. I hope that everyone I've encountered in my life is doing well, but I have no desire to reconnect with grade school friends or people I met at camp. Though I will admit, when I sit down to write a screenplay, TV script, or novel, I am inspired by the movies I watched growing up. Indiana Jones, The Goonies, E.T., Jurassic Park, Back to the Future, Jaws, Alien, slash Aliens. I like that mixture of reality-based stories with a science fiction or fantasy twist. Those are the types of tales I want to tell. That's where my nostalgia ends. But there is one thing from my youth that I wish could be brought back in style, and it isn't hypercolor shirts. I miss the days of mixed CDs, or mixtapes for the older generation. As someone who is uncomfortable with sharing my emotions, I will find other mediums to express myself. Hey honey, I can't tell you how I feel, but I'm gonna let Air Supply do it for me. Even the nights are better. I would spend hours devising the perfect playlist. I liked telling stories with my playlists, the journey of our relationship, the first time we locked eyes, crazy for you. Now you're in that lovey-dovey phase that sickens all your friends, I'm mad about you, do-do-do-do-do-do. Things are going well and you're thinking about taking it to the next level, is this love that I'm feeling? Whoops, you start to hit some turbulence. I'll be right here waiting for you. Followed by, I'll be there for you. Then to get them back, you pull out Open Arms by Journey. I'm not even going to attempt to sing that because Steve Perry is amazing. And of course, Time After Time by Cyndi Lauper. That's a one-two punch that no one can resist. Throw in Heaven, A Groovy Kind of Love, In Your Eyes, and Eternal Flame. I mean, whose heart wouldn't melt? Then you're celebrating your one-year anniversary. It feels like the first time, and you're the inspiration. Oh, and there are still so many options left. The song didn't even have to be completely relevant, as long as the tone felt right. I once told my brother that his wedding song should be Babe by Styx, and he said, You mean the song that starts off with the line, Babe, I'm leaving? Alright, right tone, wrong message. Now on to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of 5 stars. 1 star is skip it, 2 stars is watch at your own risk, 3 stars is standard fare, 4 stars is worth checking out, 5 stars is must see. Now if I give a title 5 stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca or Jaws or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. 
I'll keep the spoilers to a minimum, tangents to a maximum. These are my ruminations and observations of the movie, The Graduate, from 1967, about a reserved and aimless Ben Braddock who has a torrid affair with Mrs. Robinson, then falls for her daughter, Elaine. It was directed by Mike Nichols, who also helmed Primary Colors, The Birdcage, Regarding Henry, Working Girl, Silkwood, Catch-22. The screenplay was written by Calder Willingham and Buck Henry, which sounds like two names I've just made up, and it's based on the novel by Charles Webb. The movie starts off with a montage of Ben Braddock returning to Los Angeles over the song The Sound of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel, one of my top 10 favorite songs. I don't have many criticisms of this movie, but during this scene, the airport announcements drown out certain parts of the song, which kinda irked me. Ben arrives at his childhood home and his parents are throwing him a prodigal son returns party. This is a fun sequence because a lot of information is subtly being exposed to the audience. He's a track star, an award-winning scholar, has a bright future ahead of him, but he's an overachiever who's not satisfied. What do all these accomplishments mean in the grand scheme of life? Fortunately, I've never had to contemplate that problem. Dustin Hoffman plays a disenfranchised youth pretty aptly. He's a little awkward, not a take-charge kind of guy. He's stiff, and there's a lot of funny in that. Of course, Dustin Hoffman is well known for his memorable roles in Tootsie, Rain Man, Midnight Cowboy, Marathon Man, and the underrated Wag the Dog. But this was his breakthrough. It's not hard to see why. Ben Braddock is quietly contemplating when Mrs. Robinson barges into his bedroom, thinking it's the bathroom. She's a friend of the family whose husband is business partners with Ben's father. Mrs. Robinson is played by the wonderful Anne Bancroft, who is known for The Miracle Worker, The Elephant Man, and she acted alongside her husband, Mel Brooks, in Silent Movie, To Be or Not To Be, and Blazing Saddles. That is an interesting pairing. They met on the set of a talk show, and Mel paid an employee to tell him where Anne was going to be eating so he could accidentally bump into her. Back in the day, this was considered charming. Now, it's stalking. I put this couple in the same umbrella as Julie Andrews and Blake Edwards, Beautiful women who like funny men. Where are these women? Where are these elusive beings? I'm here. Where are you? So Mrs. Robinson asks if Ben could drive her home because her husband took the car. And here's where the fun begins. Once they arrive, she asks Ben to walk her to the door because she doesn't feel safe. Then she won't feel comfortable until the lights are on, so she asks him to come inside. Then she says she never feels comfortable in the house and asks him to stay until her husband returns. She's like Wiley e. Coyote luring the Roadrunner with a trail of birdseed, but in this scenario, Wiley e. Coyote is actually a super genius. What is brilliant about this seduction scene is that it's not done in a sexually explicit way, sensually, certainly. And whenever Ben feels uncomfortable, she justifies her actions. Mrs. Robinson asks him to unzip her dress, which he initially refuses, but she says, Come on, Ben, it's hard for me to reach. How do you argue with that? If this film were remade today, Mrs. Robinson would be naked in 2.7 seconds and they would have had wild sex in the foyer. The husband, Mr. Robinson, comes home which interrupts the seduction from getting any further. He's played by the mayor from Jaws, Murray Hamilton, and he's as naive about his wife's actions as he was about the shark. Eventually, Ben calls up Mrs. Robinson and takes her up on the offer of a stormy affair. He tells her that he's rented a room at the hotel. There's a funny piece of dialogue where she says, Isn't there something you want to tell me? To which Ben replies, I want you to know how much I appreciate this, really. And she says, The number. The room number, Ben. Very funny. They finally meet and have their romantic encounter. Their first kiss is hysterical. I had to pause it because I was laughing so hard. This does not happen much. 
There was so much funny in that scene, but it was played seriously. Comedy is serious business. So Ben and Mrs. Robinson continue to have their affair. In one of their encounters, a good portion of the scene took place in the dark, with the conversations leading it. Really entertaining, and an interesting way to shoot it. But their relationship starts to fracture. She's a bored housewife who likes the attention. He wants a connection on a deeper level. Meanwhile, Ben's parents try and push him to find direction in his life. They believe he shouldn't be spending his days swimming and drinking beer. With the encouragement of Mr. Robinson, they pressure him to ask out Elaine, the Robinson's daughter. She's played by Catherine Ross, who was nominated for Best Actress in a Supporting Role for this movie. She also appeared in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which will be featured in a future episode of the Matt Watch That podcast because, well, I haven't watched it. Mrs. Robinson threatens Ben not to see Elaine, but it's not for the reasons one might expect. The Graduate feels like two separate movies. Part one is the ongoing affair with Mrs. Robinson, and part two is the courtship with Elaine. The first half of the film started off very strong, then petered out, like the New York Giants offense. It loses a bit of steam because, like my comments on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, most of the memorable scenes and conflict take place between Ben and Mrs. Robinson, so once you remove her from that storyline, the spark is gone. I like that the movie took its time between pieces of dialogue. So many films these days have lines being said so fast to try and keep the audience's attention span. This is a surprisingly funny movie. I honestly didn't expect to laugh as much as I did. There were plenty of sight gags that had perfect timing. This movie does comedy out of awkwardness right. So many films and TV series try to do this today, and it just doesn't work. This is a good film to study if you're trying to achieve that. As I mentioned, I thought the first half of this movie was incredible, and wish they kept up that energy and humor in the second part. There were so many interesting shots, it's surprising this was only Mike Nichols' second feature-length film, though he had experience directing plays. There was an angle from the point of view of Ben in a scuba suit. The longer it went on, the more I laughed. I'm a fan of reflected shots, and when Ben and Mrs. Robinson first meet up at the hotel bar, both of their images were seen in the table glass top. My favorite edit occurred when Ben was climbing onto a pool float, and it perfectly cut with Ben climbing on top of Mrs. Robinson. Those are well-thought-out shots that are perfectly executed in editing. The soundtrack included original songs by Simon and Garfunkel quite effectively. This movie has convinced me that their music is the best to do montages over. I read a column by Peter Bart where he wrote that Mike Nichols and Paul Simon were having a conversation about the soundtrack, and Paul had mentioned that he's writing a song, not to be included in the movie, that was about the past, Mrs. Roosevelt and Joe DiMaggio, and Mike Nichols said, well now it's about Mrs. Robinson, not Mrs. Roosevelt, and that's how the song came to be. Dave Grusin composed additional music for the soundtrack. He's written the score for The Goonies, Mulholland Falls, On Golden Pond, and The Firm, to name a few. In the scene where Mrs. Robinson is seducing Ben, she turns on the radio, and there's a great piece of music playing entitled Sun Porch Cha-Cha-Cha, over which he says the infamous line, Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. Although much better than that. The runtime is 1 hour 46 minutes. It passes my under 2 hour preference. Ultimately, the movie comes down to Fish Tank, Plastics, Amity Means Friendship, Scuba Steve, Headbanging, Pasties, Mr. Gladstone, Berkeley, Mr. Roper, and Sign of the Cross. I give it 4.5 out of 5 stars and a very strong endorsement. I think everyone should watch it. If you've seen The Graduate and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Diane Warren. If you just said to yourself, who? 
You have broken my heart. You might not know her name, but you certainly know her work. She's one of the most prolific songwriters, musicians, and record producers. She is responsible for writing nine number one hits and 32 top 10 songs on the Billboard charts. That's pretty impressive. She's won a Grammy, Emmy, Golden Globe, and has been inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. We are talking about All Star here. She has written songs for artists like Cher, Chicago, Tony Braxton, Brandy, Trisha Yearwood, Aerosmith, Belinda Carlisle, Ace of Bass, Millie Vanilli, and listen to these greatest hits. If I could turn back time, I don't want to miss a thing, Because You Loved Me, How Do I Live, Love Will Lead You Back, Have You Ever, Blame It on the Rain, There You'll Be, I Get Weak, I'll Never Get Over You Getting Over Me, Could You Be a Longer Song Title, Unbreak My Heart, When I See You Smile, If You Asked Me To, I Turn To You, and Rhythm of the Night. She decided to do an upbeat number. There are a plethora of songs that I can choose from. It's almost embarrassing. But I'm going to select two. The first is Look Away by Chicago. I've always liked the song, but I kind of forgot about it in the past few years. I also didn't realize that Chicago performed it because it didn't have their signature horns. But I was on YouTube listening to an 80s playlist. It was going on and on and on. And it suddenly played this song. And I'm like, ah, oh, yes, I remember you. The premise of the song is great. You have these two people who decided to break up and stay friends, and one person is still not over the other, and that other person says, hey, I found someone new, and the person who still has feelings is like, oh, I'm happy for you. Yeah, I really am. And then you get to the chorus, and it says, hey, if we meet on the street one day, and I don't know what to say, just look away. Just look away. So I like the storytelling of that song. I'm also going to post I Get Weak by Belinda Carlisle. I've always been a Go-Go's fan, and they should totally be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame already. It's a travesty that they aren't. This was off Belinda Carlisle's second solo album called Heaven on Earth. It was the second single off that album after Heaven as a Place on Earth, and went to number two on the Billboard charts. Boy, I felt like Ryan Seacrest for a moment. Diane Warren is a phenomenal songwriter, and she keeps putting out hit after hit after hit. But if you want to go down the Diane Warren wormhole, look up her songs on Wikipedia, then search for them on YouTube. You'll be surprised at how many songs you actually know. That is Diane Warren, Queen of the Ballads, Queen of the Hit Singles. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about Pushing Daisies, from the mind of Brian Fuller, creator of Wonderfalls and Dead Like Me. He also developed for television American Gods and Hannibal. Now, I don't even know where to begin when it comes to explaining the premise of the show. It felt like Brian Fuller invited his Hollywood friends over for game night, and they were playing Mad Libs, and that was the invention of this series. Okay, so there once was a man named... I need a noun. Oh, uh, Ned. How about Ned? Oh, good. That's original. He worked as an... Occupation? Uh, how about Pie Maker? Pie Maker, wonderful, that's, yeah. He has the ability to name a superpower. Oh, um, Resurrection. But, 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 he can only bring people back from the dead for 60 seconds. And, and, if it's any longer, another living thing has to die in its place. Though here's the twist. After 60 seconds, if he touches them again, they die permanently. And I think Brian was finally like, someone take the hash brownies away from Gary Busey. 
Yes, I believe Gary Busey is the real genius behind pushing daisies. I will not believe anything to the contrary unless Brian Fuller reaches out to me personally. The series stars Lee Pace as Ned, the Pie Maker. He was in Guardians of the Galaxy and Halt and Catch Fire. I haven't seen that series. Let me know if I should. Anna Friel plays Chuck Charles, who unfortunately dies in the series, but is brought back to life by Ned. They have a will-they-won't-they they type of relationship, and then they willed, but the problem is, because she's died and he's brought her back to life, he can't touch her again. Get it? That's the premise. And then, of course, you have Kristen Chenoweth playing Olive Snook, who has eyes for Ned. So it's fun watching her being flirtatious with him and he not really getting the hint. Shy McBride plays Emerson Codd, a private investigator who decides to use Ned's ability to his advantage. They team up to solve crimes to reap grand rewards. You see, Ned brings the victim back to life, and they ask them who killed him. It's a very interesting concept. Good job, Gary Busey. Swoozy Kurtz and the great Ellen Green play sisters, Lillian and Vivian Charles, who also have a very incredible backstory. They are mourning the loss of Chuck. I thought Swoozy Kurtz was great in Liar Liar. She was a perfect foil for Jim Carrey and his craziness. And what can you say about Ellen Green? She was in the off-Broadway production of Little Shop of Horrors, originating the role of Audrey. Then she went on to appear in the 1986 movie musical version directed by Frank Oz, the Fozzie Bear Miss Piggy Frank Oz. I know people might think I'm contradicting myself because when I reviewed 500 Days of Summer, I talk about how I, I don't necessarily like quirky films, but I felt that that film was one foot in quirky, one foot out of quirky. If you're going to go quirky, go quirky. And that's exactly what Pushing Daisies does. So when they break out into musical numbers, it feels like it's naturally part of that world. And when you have Broadway stars like Ellen Green and Kristen Chenoweth doing the singing, eh, you can make some exceptions with quirkiness. Pushing Daisies ran for two seasons, 22 episodes from 2007 to 2009. It's a comedy, drama, romance, mystery, add more genres. It was really ahead of its time. I really don't know what time is appropriate for it. It is such a unique show, and I can't get enough of it. That's Pushing Daisies. Check it out. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. I do plan on having an interactive element, but I need those listeners. So follow, subscribe, like, and spread the word. Until next time, I'm going home right now. I apologize for what I said. I hope you can forget it, but I'm going home right now. Cher, Chicago, Brando, Tony Braxton. Brando? <laughs> hey, Marlon Brando, thanks for the song, Diane Warren. <laughs> and they would have had wild sex in the foyer. Foyer? Foyer. Who the hell? I'm from Long Island. Where do I say foyer? But if you want to go down the Diane Warren wormhole, look up all her hits on Wikipedia. On, li- on Wikipedia. <laughs> Oh, that's probably like the porn version.